What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. The following episode is part of the Off the Chain automation series, sponsored by IOTA. The goal of this special series is to explore the intersection of distributed ledger technology and automation, specifically around digital currencies, digital wallets, and machine-to-machine transactions. My core belief is that every stock, bond, currency, and commodity will eventually be digitized, and distributed ledger technology will empower the full potential of automation to be realized. IOTA is the sponsor of the automation series. Their mission is to support the research and development of new distributed ledger technologies, including IOTA Tangle. The IOTA Foundation encourages the education and adoption of distributed ledger technologies through the creation of ecosystems and the standardization of these new protocols. You can find out more about the automation series and IOTA in the show notes. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I am here with Tom. Uh, I'm super excited to do this. You are uh, Mr. Research in the crypto world. Um, shout out to my Delphi guys, though, too. They're, they're like the uh, Tom Lee of, uh, of the future. Um, thank you so much for taking time to uh, come and record. Thanks. Good to be here. Absolutely. Um, your background first so that we know your perspective for the conversation. Or uh, uh, Fun so uh, I've been a research analyst since 1993. So for the last 27 years, um, studied companies and markets. Uh, for the first half of that, I was a technology analyst. I covered the wireless industry. Um, people take for granted today that wireless is everywhere. But in you know 1993, there were 34 million cell phones. Today, there's four and a half billion. And in the early 90s, everybody thought cell phones were going to be yuppie toys. And, you know, I think that I was very lucky because I was in my 20s covering an industry that was not really considered legitimate, but growing very quickly. And I uh, started to get recognized in this thing called Institutional Investor, which is this uh, research poll that rates analysts. And I became ranked very quickly. I was one of the youngest uh, people to become II ranked. And I think the reason I uh, was kind of recognized by our clients was I had a different perspective of how technology would be used in wireless because to me it was a quantum leap in utility. I think a lot of people thought wireless was going to be a way to protect traditional long distance and local telephony. And, um, you know, so I think that perspective really helped. And then um, in the early 2000s, I switched from wireless to doing bankruptcy research. Um, and I wrote a report called The Chapter After Chapter 11. I talked about how companies uh, that were in bankruptcy were actually better investments than people realize because once a company goes into bankruptcy, it becomes illegitimate and orphaned. And so as it emerges, no one wants to touch it again. So it turns out those are great stocks. And uh, JP Morgan really liked sort of what we were doing there and then asked me uh, in 07 to become their chief equity strategist and write about markets broadly. And so... I've been doing that for the last 12 years. And then four years ago, we started Fundstrat with my partner, John Bay. And 
Uh, it's kind of the same thing. You know, we just focus on institutional investors and we give them uh, really detailed, highly, you know, researched research on markets and views. And that's what we do. How, um, going from technology to equities to crypto, because you guys have started to cover crypto and uh, very quickly become known for it. Um, how did you originally come across Bitcoin or, or any of the uh, blockchain uh, technology? Um, yeah, you know, Bitcoin was on the periphery while well, I was at J.P. Morgan. Um, our FX strategist at the time was writing about it. And in 2014, you know, he even posited the idea that someday <clears throat> it might be in a currency basket. And uh, so I think as a macro team, we used to talk about it. But at the time, it, it was essentially viewed as somewhat tainted, uh, you know, in larger organizations because it was seen as, you know, used for buying drugs and avoiding taxes. And so I, I didn't pay too much attention. Um, but then when we started Fundstrat, uh, we were a little more free to kind of just revisit topics. And uh, a few years ago, we just said, let's, let's revisit this whole idea of Bitcoin because at the time it... It looks like it survived, and we wrote a piece. And, you know, it's just the idea that, look, even if you were just to make the assumption that this was just going to be digital gold, it's probably a huge risk-reward. And so that was our first sort of thought and and work into Bitcoin. And, and when was that? That was uh, mid-2017, right? Yeah. 2017? Yeah. Um, and then the name Fundstrat, where's, uh, where's that come from? Uh, so it's just a concatenation, fundamental strategy. Um and that's what we are. We're a bottoms-up firm that look at bottoms-up data, but we develop that into a macro strategy view. I think it's different. Our clients tend to view us as differentiated because strategy work tends to be high level, you know, uh, based on macroeconomic inputs to derive views. You know, our view is the idea that not only are top-down important, which it is important, but bottoms-up really helps to confirm or identify variants. Mm -hmm. So... We do fun strat. Makes sense. Um, and then just kind of from a researcher standpoint today, uh, how do you view Bitcoin um, and crypto in the broader macro strategy? Right. What, what are you seeing there? What's kind of the research led you to? Um, you know, I think that if we looked at um, how funds, institutional hedge funds and individual portfolio managers have survived the past 20 years, They've really adopted and understood the importance of network value companies, you know, so companies where network effects really come into play. It's like your former company, Facebook, um, all the social media companies. But it's also true that these sort of platform entities and growth are asset light businesses. And, and that's really what we've seen outperform in, in, the, in the macro world. Crypto really fits well into that. You know, Bitcoin is really the ultimate network value asset. Um, and it's exactly how the dollar is, right? The dollar is as strong and as well-funded as is. Even people argue it's because of the military. I think it's just because it's really widely used. Um, so I think over time, as Bitcoin's adoption grows, I think it's still a very small number of active users. And as its uh, you know volatility improves, I think it becomes a true asset class. But you know, it's, it's, we're still years away from that. For sure. And one of the trends I want to spend some time talking about um, is the intersection of automation and uh, cryptocurrency um, or, or digital tokens. Uh, we're doing this automation series. And so what I'm really thinking through is uh, anytime you get multiple macro trends that uh, either intersect or, or kind of uh, combine, 
um, it is uh, usually a point of great value creation, right? Uh, and so maybe share a little bit about what you're seeing from public markets and, and um, outside of the crypto world, just on the automation front. We can talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get into kind of the intersection with uh, with digital assets. Um, yeah, um, I think automation is really a mega trend. Like, I think it's a trend that's bigger than a lot of industrial revolutions. Um, okay. And I, I, Why do you think that? Well, I think that there's two things, two really unique things happening in the world today that like at this moment uh, is creating, you know, the big window for automation. One is um, cellular technology and penetration and the speed of networks is fast enough now to really enable effective machine-to-machine machine communications. You know, it was funny because in the late 90s, we used to call it telematics. You know, the idea that, oh, well, when you have mobile cars can talk to each other or devices and you know the handshakes took too long it was easy to inter intercept the signal you couldn't authenticate if it was a genuine communication so it was too early um, today with 5g machines can now speak and handshake and authenticate information that gets lost today but i think the second really important thing and i don't think people fully appreciate this, but for the first time in 50 years, the world is running out of labor. So um, from 1974 to 2018, the prime age workforce globally grew faster than the total population. And it, it resulted in that 50 year period, 611 million excess growth on a 7 billion global population, um, which works out to 27 percentage points more workers available for every unit of output. So, you know, for the last 50 years, you didn't have to worry about being asset heavy or necessarily robots because there was so much cheap labor somewhere. We're, we've now completely flipped. So in the next 10 years, the world is going to be short 80 million workers. So automation and IoT is going to be born out of necessity. So it's not the Terminator scenario. It's more that we're just going to have a shortage of workers. Yeah, when I think of automation, you know, I, there's definitely the doomsday of, hey, we're going to displace a bunch of workers, like life's over, you know, humans are going to be replaced by all these machines. And for me, it's like, haven't we heard this before, right? Where there's been so many other disruptive technologies that it was going to put all the humans out of work. And actually what it did was it got us out of work that a lot of people didn't like, or it wasn't very good use of our time, and it freed us up to go do other things, to create, to, to build things, etc. Yeah, it's actually the, the betterment angle is really the important thing. Uh, I think a really similar example is how frozen food disrupted farming. Okay. Um, so, you know, in the 1930s, 36% uh, of the U.S. labor force were farmers. Mm -hmm. And if you said in 1936, by 1959 only 5% of the population would be farmers. Some economists would say, oh, you're going to have a massive collapse of the U.S. economy because you're going to put 29% of the workforce out of work. Well, the, the disruption was because of flash frozen. Flash frozen reduced the spoilage. You know, 40% of fresh food spoiled. It transformed the, the grocery store. You used to, grocery stores used to almost always be fresh, now it became frozen. And it caused a massive deflation in food wallet. You know, food used to be 20% of the wallet, and it's now less than 10. But that drop in 20 to 10 created discretionary money to go traveling. 
for people to buy TVs. So it actually created a lot of leisure time and productivity in America. And of course, you know, the U.S. boomed. So, you know, taking farmers and putting them into factories was really productive. Absolutely. And as this happens, do you have a sense of um, automation becomes uh, just more pervasive through various aspects of work today? Where do the humans go next? Like, like, do you know what some of those kind of more frontier markets look like? Or do we still need some more time to figure that out? Um, It's a great question. I, I think, you know, you know, McKinsey had a great study a few years ago where they said, you know, which jobs are the least likely to be automated? And it's things where there's judgment required. Um, So making, you know, research decisions, uh, discoveries, managing people and robots. I think that that's going to be a source of employment. I think that the other possibility is that people just have more leisure time. Mm -hmm. And Look, you know, today leisure time isn't valued because most people pursue it with maybe, you know, not being productive. But, you know, in 20 years, what if everyone has an extra 10 hours to, to study the world, make scientific discoveries, you know, make social observations, do art? I, I think it could be quite beneficial to society. So, I, I, you know, it's a good question. I don't know. For sure. And... and- you know, the other piece of it, um, and I thought of a joke uh, when you said that, is like, you know, the machines are going to replace us. No, I'm just going to manage the machines. Right? Yeah. That's kind of what we've seen in factories, right? You know, b- before we had any sort of machinery, it was just humans doing the tasks. Then we got machines in place, and now we have people who manage those machines, and the people who got freed up went and did other things. Um, and along your lines of uh, where judgment is required, I think of it as judgment uh, and or creativity. Right, so, so creativity is kind of a form of judgment, but if you look at all of the things that have popped up um, through social media, um, content, and all these uh, aspects, people are making real money doing this stuff, right? Yeah. You could easily see um, a, a portion of the population moving to more creative-based jobs, which are just hard for machines to do, um, or that those judgment-based jobs that, uh, that you described. Yeah, and I, I think it would be really useful to society. I mean, if you think about you know, who we really respected in past centuries it was always artists writers you know people making discoveries in the last 50 years the only people that really get respected are people who make money so i think the focus on money is you know i i think by nature in a world of automation and productivity money will be less important mm-hmm. well and, and so that brings me to um many people who listen to the podcast know i have two core theses in this uh, industry of crypto and the first is that Bitcoin, uh, as a store of value, is very interesting and um, has the potential to be one of the most disruptive pieces of technology we'll see in our lifetime. Um, and that thesis is really driven by the idea that people will trust an algorithm um, more than they will trust other humans, right? Um, yep. At kind of its core, you see that in other aspects of your life. In the financial world, I think it's going to happen. And a store of value asset with cryptographic securities is a, is a huge um, piece of that. The second thesis is every stock, bond, currency, and commodity will get digitized at some point in the future. Um, And really, that thesis is built on the idea that uh, this theme of automation, where machines are actually able to work with each other, talk to each other, um, get things done when you coordinate them together, uh, once you have the units of value, the literally stocks, bonds, currencies, or commodities, and the machines can now transact with each other. Right. And so that is a huge kind of inflection point for automation because you're actually digitizing the 
the unit of value rather than just having kind of the two participants in a transaction, <clears throat> digital or machinery. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, sort of a overlaying all that is that it's going to be a transformation of what is accounts for money. Okay, explain right. that. Um, well, today, you know, money is really defined as uh, a unit of account that a country would issue, right? And in the past, you could have exchanged it for hard money for gold. Uh, today, of course, fiat currency is now just exchanged for nothing. It's just uh, backed by nothing. Well, it's um, a belief system. Yeah, a belief system. And um, But when we think about digital money, like Bitcoin, and it's a really brilliant execution because, you know, as you mentioned, it's really uh, putting trust uh, onto the blockchain instead of saying, hey, look, trust me, this is a real dollar bill. But over time, other things are quite valuable that we don't call money. So, for instance, uh, a reputation or authenticity is worth zero today, but we've seen how it's monetized through sponsorship. So I think things like reputation or morality or um, you know effectiveness are going to be forms of monetization. And that's uh, really valuable because that means people don't have to worry about you know how many dollars they make a month it, they it's really how much accumulated value do they have that they could exchange for other goods and services and yes and even powering robots you know you do want to make sure we can sort of authentically cut off and shut down a robot especially as if they get smart absolutely and so when i think of this whole idea of uh intersecting digital tokens money value etc uh with the automated machines the examples that I think through are um, there's like a scale of automation, right, or, or spectrum. So you have full automation or you have like semi-autonomous or uh, automated things. Um, and easy examples are, uh, you know, you've got a car, it's going to drive uh, down the road rather than stop, have a human pull out fiat currency out of their pocket and hand it to another human who then does some accounting, right, and gives you change and you keep driving. That car can simply just drive over a sensor. It basically pays from the car a digital asset to um, the you know the road right? yep. or, or the sensor. Um, all of the accounting is automated. All of the transactions automated. The person never even has to slow down. They just drive right. Um, we kind of have this with like an easy pass, right? So you, yep. so if you kind of drive through, it's just got um, a little bit more friction than than this uh, fully digital system. Um, are there other examples where you guys have thought about or, or come across in your research where you think that there's like very obvious intersections um, or things that you get excited about in, uh, in that? Well, um, you know, so autos, I think, interestingly, is probably one of the most important and obvious and, and really a huge deal okay. um, because it really uh, blends the idea of like what's money versus time. Mm -hmm. uh, to give an example, you know, when the when the government measures productivity, it's measured in tenths of an hour's worked. So tenth of an hour worked gained is a productivity miracle. Okay. A tenth of a 40-hour week is basically a tenth of 40 hours, which is, um, you know, it's like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So if you can cut out two minutes out of someone's commute... Right out of a 40-minute commute, that is a productivity miracle. And automation, whether it's, like you said, passing an easy pass or uh, you're charging on the road instead of you know, at, um, at a charging station or traffic is optimized, mm -hmm. that's a productivity miracle. Mm -hmm. And that would show up as like, oh my gosh, the U.S. is having a productivity boom. In fact, you know, commute times in the last 
40 years have increased in the Northeast. So people, it takes longer for people to get to work the same distance. And so, you know, you could extend how people commute. So I think, you know, what you've described is the single most practical use of automation. Um, But there's others. I mean, I'd say financial transactions broadly, anytime that you're exchanging money is probably the best place to look for automation to boom. Um, Today, if you look at global financial industry share of GDP, so what they call value capture, according to the OECD, it's 6% of GDP. So that means six. six. That means the average person spends three and a half weeks a year paying for the right to use the financial system. So you're spending a month of your salary just to say, oh, I want to use this monetary system. So I think automation and IoT really take away that friction. And it should be, you know, people should spend one day of their salary a year to use the financial system. That's a huge amount. That's $4 trillion unlocked. Um, And another example, way to think of it is, you know, today banks lend and they're primarily in charge of determining if you're a good credit. They make about $1,000 a year off each customer. Mm -hmm. Facebook and and social media companies probably have a better feel for you as a credit. In fact, uh, a cell phone company told me that one of the best predictors of credit quality of their customers who are on EIP, installment plans, is is how often they let their phone battery die. So they found that the irresponsible credits are the people that let their phone battery die. So it turns out social media and... All these companies can make better lending decisions and the, and through their ability to enter the banking system can really reduce the value capture of the financial industry. It, it's interesting you say that because um, I, I've seen a couple of companies that want to use phone data to actually underwrite loans, right? So, yeah. so very similar um, stuff. Uh, I want to go back to the machine-to-machine transactions for a second because, um, you know, as I've thought more and more about this, uh, I try to draw parallels to the world that exists today, right? And so if you just think of um, when you go to uh, Starbucks or um, now even in New York City in the subway, you could take your phone, which is a machine, right, and kind of just yeah. swipe it in front of a sensor or another machine uh, and pay for things. Um I then go even as far as to say, like, you can make the extrapolation of the humans are a type of machine, right? We just have some yeah. advantages over um, non-human We just need different energy. Yeah, we, yeah, we just, it, there's non-human machines and there's human machines, right? Yeah. Um, but but uh, our face is now starting to act like a wallet, right? What I mean by that is if you think of the Amazon ghost stores, right? Where you literally yeah. walk in, the facial recognition knows who you are. They're able to link that to an account. You walk all through the store, you pick up items, and you walk out, and it charges you. Right, so your face acted as you know the equivalent of a wallet in that case. Um, in all of this, uh, you know, I've been kind of thinking about it around the periphery, and um, you know, when, when I originally met um, the uh, the guys at IOTA, and they were telling me about this like wallet inside of a car. Right, I started to think, well, if you have a wallet in your phone, right, that's a digital wallet with digital assets, you can go pay for all these things if you put that phone in front of something. And then you have a wallet inside of your car and your car can basically pay for things. You very quickly get to a world where there's a whole bunch of machines that you and I interact with on a daily basis that could be a wallet in the future or could be a participant in a transaction, right? A yeah. sender or a receiver. And so to me, it just, it changes the way we think about value and transactions. And I don't know where the line is. Like, like where is the line of uh, reasonable expectations of the future versus you know, 20 years ago, because we're going to have flying cars. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah, th- there is some line of like what is possible and what's not, let's say the next 10 or 20 years. 
where do you kind of feel you know it, it is likely versus uh, maybe some of this stuff is pipe dream stuff and, and unlikely to occur? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and you know I and IOTA is really doing some clever things because you know they're not, they're capturing uh, quite a lot of information, right? So uh, on 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 a on a on a network like that, you not only are capturing maybe the movement of money, but really the move the transfer of information. And, and that information is generally lost. I think machine to machine really is the place where we're going to see true network effects take place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from what's practical, I think we know it's a dream for advertisers to know, for you to exchange more information about yourself. So yeah. I think as a practical matter, you know, one of the implications for this is that a lot of things that we do today could actually become free. You know, or or companies might even pay us for just walking around. Um, you know, Facebook might pay quality users money to be a subscriber, or someone who has social impact uh, could actually be paid. Um, and you know, is in terms of what's practical, I think wherever people feel like they gain personal time, that's going to make a difference. So you know, that's why I come back to the commute. I think commuting is probably the biggest loss of time for people today. You know, if someone spends an hour commuting, that's two hours a day, they're awake, you know, 12 hours, it's a huge percentage of their time that just got lost. And if How it could crazy be, is it be yeah. if you don't have to drive yourself somewhere? Yeah. Right? You literally could just get into a vehicle in your driveway and be productive, whether you want to use it to actually be productive or just entertain yourself. That's exactly for right. For time. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, that's a pretty serious inflection point in humanity's productivity, right? That they yeah. can do at the wake hours. That I just don't see a lot of people talking about. Yeah, and that's an incredible percentage of time. And, you know, it can be future of, hey, it's an extension of your living room, or it could be a meeting room, or it could be a social period of time, or, you know, there's a lot of ways that could be transformed, and that's network value. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it might be interesting to see how sleep is transformed, too, because, you know, we spend eight hours sleeping, and who knows, maybe our sleeping habits or... You know, the, the hive mind of what happens in our sleep could be useful information. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things. But I think we all have to think about, you know, how our 24 hours a day is transformed. Mm-hmm. And, and so as you look further and further out into where some of this stuff is going, how much of this is sequential, right? So meaning uh, we need X to happen first, then, you know, Y, then Z uh, versus it's all going to happen uh, kind of simultaneously and you just kind of push innovation forward. You push um, progress all at the same time on these different fronts. Yeah. And wireless, you know, because wireless used to be where a lot of R&D money was spent on, you know, new technologies. Um, we used to joke it's, you know, the bleeding edge. And it's tough to be a bleeding edge company because the end user doesn't care when it actually happens. And I think that if we look at how technology gets adopted, it never gets adopted and all of a sudden it is. So I think we'll see companies really pushing this on the edge, uh, even some countries, and then one day it's it's pervasive. What, um, any thoughts around this whole uh, like Neuralink, uh, kernel, um, the idea of taking computers? And um, I think about it as uh, the mobility of computing power has gone from literally mainframes, which had no, no no mobility, and you went to it, to then you got to bring it a little bit closer, a little bit closer. Then you had a you know a PC, then you got a phone, and it's just getting closer and closer to us, where it goes everywhere we go. Um, but the ultimate end point is it's literally embedded, you know, somewhere in your body. Right now, we're talking about the brain, but but it could be anywhere. 
pipe dream likely to happen timeline if you think it's going to happen yeah um you know i mean i'm not i wouldn't be surprised if uh you know some of this outbound type of things get implanted because you know i think there's medical uses for that I think the average person would get very concerned about privacy and getting hacked because, you know, imagine if someone had a sensor and like they didn't want someone to find out they're like, you know, meeting their, you know, they're cheating on their wife or something, you know, um, and and they send it to the wrong channel. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's uh, it's going to be an interesting world because, you know, the 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 younger generations are really comfortable sharing their information. You know, there's many surveys. that I've seen, and these are global surveys that show young people trust technology companies way more than they trust banks or governments. So they might be very comfortable sharing this information. And, you know, maybe it'll just be the old guard that sort of, you know, you know, puts a, a Faraday cage on their body just so that they don't uh, get personally hacked. <laughs> For sure. Well, and I think, you know, uh, it's kind of like this sci-fi becomes reality at some point. And so if you think through, uh, I've been watching movies, you know, for years where somebody hacks the pacemaker, right? No. Somebody's body. Um, and then uh, if you watch like Black Mirror episodes, I, I literally think I've seen probably two or three of them. So I'm not a, a huge uh, watcher of it, but the two or three I've watched every time, I'm like, wow, that's pretty crazy. Um, one I remember, uh, basically your entire day is recorded, right? So your eyes are recording like, like a video and then you can't go home and there's like a woman yelling at a guy like, show me the video, right? And it's literally every single thing he saw out of his own two eyes. That's um, funny. And he's got to rewind it, yep. you know, do all stuff. So, so that's a little weird. Um, and then the other is, uh, I kind of even go as far as to say, if you're going to start to implant a machine into your body. Uh, and we go back to the idea that the car could be a, a wallet, the phone could be a wallet. Like, is there a day where actually just the, the machine that is in your body is the wallet, right? And so you, you actually have all of the properties of a digital wallet. It's just embedded within your body. I don't think it's happening tomorrow. But, yeah. you know, 20, 30, 50 years from now, it could become very interesting. Uh, you know, I... I, I would say the majority of the listeners are going to think it's preposterous. I don't, I don't think it's that crazy. Um, it ties into a very generalized demographic observation I'd have, which is, you know, like when, when people think about retirement, um, Social Security is really a proxy for how you measure that, right? You know, you get a Social Security payment. And at the time they established Social Security, and they actually began to measure this with long-term disability. So in the 1960s, they estimated the average period of time someone would receive Social Security would only be seven years. Mm-hmm. So you'd be work all your life, and then you get this check for like seven years, and then you pass away. So at 62, and you're done by 70. Yes. And today, uh, people can now expect to receive it for as much as 40 years, right? So in just 50 years, you've gone from receiving something from seven years and it's a 10% of your life to something that's 40 years and 40% of your life. I think in the next 50 years, we have to say, how much time are people gonna spend in retirement? I think it's gonna be 80% of their life. I think there's a possibility people work for 10 years and by the time they're age 30, they're retired. So one of the things uh, that is very controversial that I believe um, is this whole uh, answer to the UBI uh, conversation. So uh, universal basic income yeah. is the idea that uh, the government will pay people some, you know, some amount of money, whatever it ends up being. And I've always said that I think you can keep a lot of the same capitalistic principles that we know today, um, but 
where people will get quote unquote income or revenue is monetizing all the data they create. So if I'm sitting and you, know, you were talking about earlier, if I'm using a internet service, they could be paying me to give them my personal data or just my user data, right? What am I actually looking at? What ads did I see? What did I click on? Um, when it comes to personal health data, right? So literally, what's my blood pressure every day? How many steps did I take today? Right? What did I eat? Did my insulin go up? Did it not? Like, there's plenty of people who want that information. Uh, your DNA information, right? You can just go down a line. Yep. There's a lot of data that you Correct. create every day. We don't think of that as, quote, unquote, valuable, right, in terms of I can go sell it somewhere because there's no physical marketplace to, like, yeah. show up and be like, hey, download my phone and give me money. But I do think that there's going to be these virtual marketplaces that companies will build where you will get paid for that data. And actually, you'll probably get paid a lot of money. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it. and by implication, it's creating two classes of people who are uh, sort of providing information and the other people who pay for it. So, mm-hmm. you know, there'll be a narrow group of people that actually could be quite highly paid because their influence or their archetype or their genetics are quite attractive. Um, makes perfect sense. I mean, if people don't believe it, think about like Dollar Shave Club. I mean, you know, shaving takes what, five minutes or something a day? And and that's a billion dollar business, you know? It's and we, crazy. Yeah, we have 24 hours a day to monetize. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, before we, uh, we wrap up, any... Um at that intersection of uh, automation and crypto, any kind of big uh, big guesses as to things that are coming that maybe people aren't thinking about? Uh, well, y- you know, again, I think what our team's been working on is looking for ideas where there are really fast blockchains. You know, so I think Bitcoin already occupies uh, a, a vector that is going to be tough to challenge. I mean, look, you know, after 10 years, you know, nothing has replaced Bitcoin. And Bitcoin's Bitcoin. Um, nothing's even close. Nothing close, right. exactly. Like when you, and I love and we watch television, they don't even know another word other than Bitcoin. Like, they don't even think that there's other assets, yeah. right, in terms of the conversation. If you're just watching and didn't know anything, like, well, there's Bitcoin, and then there's, like, all these other industries. Exactly. <laughs> and, and you know, it's a myth when people think Internet 2.0 companies came way after Internet 1.0. You know, Amazon and its competitors, like, you know, Bookstore.com or Facebook and MySpace or Yahoo and Google, they were all founded within 12 months of each other. You know, it's uh, – so Bitcoin – likely doesn't have a competitor. But, you know, IoT is, I think, a huge, huge use case for blockchains and, and you know, sort of digital network effects. And, you know, we're looking at projects like IOTA's one, and there's there's many others. But, look, I think it's a lot of opportunity in crypto. But Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Absolutely. Um, before I let you go, I ask every uh, guest uh, about aliens. Believer, non-believer? Uh, I'm a believer. Why? Uh, well, one, I think that this is a huge universe, and I, I'm not surprised that there would be other civilizations. Even anybody who's biblical uh, will know that even in the Old Testament, there were non-humans, you know, on Earth. But secondly, my brother, we grew up in Michigan. He swears he's seen a UFO. Oh, man. I didn't yes. witness it. So not you, I'm a, yes. just it. But I trust my brother. I don't think he was trying to bamboozle me. All right. I, th- I thought you were going to tell me you met an alien. Oh, no. <laughs> that was going to be a big If I have an alien and he was telling reveal. me the future, I wouldn't tell you guys. Okay? <laughs> I'd just be trading it for a fortune. All right. So we are not going to see you go in a storm area 51 with all these uh, crazies <laughs> on the internet. No. Um, no, listen, man. I, I really appreciate it. I'm a huge fan of, uh, of the research that you guys are doing. So uh, thanks so much thanks. for having me to, uh, to come on and uh, talk about this stuff. Yeah. Well, it's fun. Let's do it again. Hey, everyone. Pop here. 
If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.